to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul. Hello, I'm Dan Hummel, host of the Upwards podcast. I'm excited to be introducing this, our inaugural episode, an interview with the historian Darren Dochuk. We were fortunate enough to have Darren at Upper House in February of this year. He was one of our last in-person guests before COVID. Darren held a bunch of talks and meetings while he was in Madison, and one was to sit down with me for an interview. What you're about to hear is a conversation between two historians. Be warned, I'm kidding, but there are a couple pieces of info that will help orient you to this interview. The first is that Darren is a historian of American religion and politics at the University of Notre Dame. He's been teaching there since 2015. Second, Darren is Canadian, which we talk a bit about in the interview. And third, we had Darren at Upper House to discuss his new book, Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America, published in 2019. Now, this book is vast in scope, covering everything from the first oil patches discovered in North America to the history of Standard Oil and what is now called Saudi Aramco, one of the largest oil producers in the world. Darren tells the story of oil and of American Christianity and how the two have been intertwined in ways that will surprise you, I'm sure, as much as it surprised me. So with these pieces of info in hand, let's not delay anymore. Here is Darren Dochuk. Just expressing my appreciation for your work and the breadth of... I mean, I think one thing that strikes me about anything you write, and particularly the two main books, is that you have such a breadth of knowledge spanning so many different fields. And what it tells me is that you must have had an interest in history far before your PhD program, as you were just talking about. History is sort of who you are, or at least a core part of your identity. So if you could just sort of tell me, like, what is your origin story with history? Where did you find the passion and and really decide that you wanted to become a historian? Well, first, good to be with you, Dan. I have this opportunity to chat with you Origin story. Well, uh, you're right. I did grow up uh, as a kid, always passionate about history somehow, uh, perhaps through my mother. My mother loved to read history. She loved to travel. She was obsessed with the United States. Uh, So each summer we would get in the car and head south. Uh, Growing up in Edmonton, Alberta, that's probably the safest direction. Uh, And it's really the only direction to go in to to find something uh, that will be uh, worthy of vacation. So we would inevitably uh, end up somewhere in the United States. Uh, Along the way, we would be reading histories of places where we're going. Go figure. I just seem to absorb that passion and uh, also an obsession with American history as a Canadian always trying to make sense of what was going on south of the border. Uh, as a kid, loved reading books about the Civil War uh, and the Revolution. Uh, I guess that's one origin in terms of when I actually decided this is something I can do and hopefully do for a living. As an undergraduate, uh, you know, you're, you're deciding on which major. Uh, toyed with the idea of teaching high school phys ed. But then through a couple of really uh, enjoyable classes came to the realization that people actually do this for a living. They research, they, they write, and they teach. And that seemed to be uh, just a, a wonderful combination. And uh, I decided to do uh, undergraduate honors thesis. And uh, through that, encountered the works of uh, leading religious historians like George Marsden and Mark Knoll, uh, Nathan Hatch, 
Uh, I was writing a thesis about uh, the revivalist D.L. Moody in the 19th century. And uh, so through my own, largely my own initiative, did the research for this and, and fell in love there too with religious history, especially American religious history. And just the way those scholars wrote uh, fairly in, in balanced form, balanced voice uh, and fashion about uh, evangelicals, uh, fundamentalists, uh, that resonated with me as well since I had grown up in an evangelical home. So it was the combination, I guess, of, of childhood and, and coming, encountering this phenomenal work by these phenomenal scholars that convinced me that uh, history was my future. You mentioned that your your mother was very passionate about history, particularly American history. Did you ever go through like a Canadian history phase where you were mm. just really interested in, in your I always found Canadian history boring, but nevertheless, I actually took my first step at the graduate level doing a master's in history at Queen's University, mm. and I wrote a thesis there on evangelicals in late 19th century Toronto, evangelicals and politics. I did attempt it, <laughs> but I came to the realization that, no, indeed, I am much more interested in American history than Canadian. So uh, it was at that juncture that I decided to, to go south and do a PhD in American history at an American institution, uh, always thinking that I would go back to Canada to teach it in a Canadian university. Well, very good. You mentioned that you grew up in an evangelical home, and I wonder if you could talk a little more about that sort of religious upbringing. What was it like? And I assume it influenced sort of what you ended up uh, writing uh, most of your work about. What was it like being an evangelical in Canada? Well, I grew up in Alberta, which is kind of the Texas of Canada. It is kind of the Bible Belt of Canada. So the evangelicalism as a whole across the country does not kind of enjoy the same cultural power or political power that it does down in the United States. But in Alberta, that's a slightly different case. And so, you know, growing up uh, in the 80s, this was a very intense time for Alberta religion and politics as well. There was the longest kind of serving populist government in North American history was social credit running Alberta at the time and, and that was had deep roots in evangelicalism itself. So it was all around me. I attended a Christian Missionary Alliance church uh, and then an evangelical free uh, in both cases, my dad served for a time as pastor, so I was also a pastor's kid. He also served as a pastor for a rural church, and I remember uh, each Sunday morning just kind of dreading the hour and a half drive into the middle of nowhere, but uh, this was, again, his sense of calling. So uh, it certainly was everywhere in my childhood and youth, and I would go on and, and do actually one year of Bible school, uh, thinking that I might be you know, headed for the ministry, but again, being pulled back into books and, and, and scholarship, eventually decided, of course, just to stick with the, the academic route. How has it influenced me beyond that? I mean, there's no doubt that the first two of my books are in many ways my attempt to grapple with and come to terms with my own upbringing, kind of wear it on my sleeve a bit, and I tell my grad students to do the same. There's no harm, I think, in blending kind of the personal with the professional, with the academic. In the first book, I focus on Southern California. My family spent a lot of time in Southern California during summers, and we would go to a variety of churches uh, who would have radio programs, right, that my parents would listen to. So that was kind of my in to that story. Uh, the second book on religion and oil is, again, a very very much an Alberta story, and it's very much uh, rooted in my own uh, kind of experience with that firsthand growing up in the 1980s during an oil bust, uh, at which time Alberta suffered mightily. You know, whether we thought we were insulated or not, we, we weren't, and those issues would, would make their way into sermons, would make their way into the, the culture of the pews. So this book is in some ways a chance to revisit that time in my life.
a few times you've talked about already sort of other career paths you might have had. Uh, you mentioned, I think it was physical ed mm-hmm. was, a, was a potential, and then the pastorate as well. I'm just looking for a story here. Was there any particular moment or episode where there was a, a real potential that you wouldn't become a historian? Well, for sure. I, again, as I said early on, it was thinking I loved sports. I played competitive sports. I played volleyball. Initially, going to college, I saw myself, again, as, as being a history teacher, perhaps, but also a phys ed teacher and coaching. I guess the, you know, and the ministry came before that, too, the potential of perhaps going to the mission field or, or serving in the pastorate. Uh, once I got to the master's level, uh, that's when I really did seriously kind of think about alternative tracks. Uh, I finished the master's at Queen's and got into the PhD program, uh, but I saw several of my friends and colleagues who were already in the PhD program at that point struggling to get jobs. And uh, so I had come up with the idea and the, came to the conclusion, really, that being an urban planner might be my my next best step. And so I did consider programs. I thought it might be good as well in terms of uh, you know, allowing me to control my destiny geographically. It would allow us to come back west. Uh, so that was probably as close as it came. Uh, once I got into the PhD program, at Notre Dame, you know, the obsession was becoming the historian, was lucky in the way that turned out. So you're in the program, you graduate, you've made it uh, for sure. You've now been a professor for 15 years, Purdue and Washington University in St. Louis, and now Notre Dame. If you are asked ever to define yourself as a historian, what do you say? Well, I say I'm a historian of 20th century United States or of modern America. I was trained in religious history, but recognized quite early on in my dissertation that to get a job I had to sell myself in other ways, and that's where I really focused on political history. So my first job at Purdue was actually a political history job, Mm -hmm. and uh, for the first six years of my seven-year stay there, taught nothing but political history. I didn't teach anything on religion until I think the last year I was there which was great, and uh, was able through that to get connected into political history, get connected into urban history. Uh, I edited, co-edited a volume uh, on the Sun Belt, which brought in historians uh, from various backgrounds. Again, political history of race, ethnicity, and I just found that exhilarating. So going forward, I saw my, my goal is trying to bridge fields, bridge subfields, and bring them into conversation with one another. This most recent book, of course, forced me to get deep into oil history and energy history, energy humanities, both fields of which are quite substantial, uh, and bring it into conversation with relig- religious and political history. Over the course of my short career, that's kind of been my goal, and I'm at a place now where I feel like I can converse in, in different ways and, and as a whole, you know, write and teach the 20th century uh, with these kind of multiple perspectives and dynamics all in play. Could you imagine a, a future project where sort of religion doesn't play a strong component in it? Right. No, I can. In fact, you know, thinking about next projects, I've, I've considered one that will include religion, but it won't be necessarily central. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have loved kind of immersing myself in energy humanities, uh, kind of the anthropological study, cultural study of energy, energy regimes. So it might have more to do with that or connecting to environment and, and kind of climate crisis. So yes, that's a great possibility. My position at Notre Dame allows me to do that, but of course I, you know, I'm also there to help continue the tradition of religious history, American religious history, which has always been strong at Notre Dame, or at least has been strong for the last few generations. So I'll never 
steer too far away from it, but certainly in terms of writing, especially, I can see doing other types of projects. And somewhat related to that, sort of picking up the thread on your own spiritual biography, if you're ever asked what your faith or spiritual identity is? Well, uh, I just avoid it. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's cliche, maybe spiritual, not religious. I don't identify with any uh, religious kind of institution, organization per se, but certainly read deeply and widely in kind of more ecumenical fashion. If uh, Deborah and I are to attend a service, it's usually at the Basilica uh, on Notre Dame campus. And just being on campus and we live, we border the campus, there, there is already a sense of kind of belonging uh, to the to the richness of, of that tradition, even though uh, I did not grow up there, so uh, in the Catholic uh, faith. But uh, but we have found a kind of a home within that, that culture as well. So Darren, I want to uh, intersperse our conversation with some more fun conversation. And so we're going to switch gears and do short uh, a speed round. We're going to do two of these. This one will be more about your bio, your personal life. So first, how did you and your wife meet? Church. A little more. <laughs> we met at uh, a, a large... You could call it a mega church, Mennonite Brethren Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. We're part of the large college and career group, and we also attended Simon Fraser University together. The most peculiar thing about South Bend, Indiana is? Cloud cover. It's on the wrong side of the lake, so we we get a lot of lake effect uh, moisture. The gray skies in January and February can wear you down. I don't know if that's peculiar, but it certainly is. We share some of that here in in Madison, Uh, maybe not to the same degree. Your favorite current piece of pop culture is Ooh. I mean I'm, I'm still a sports fanatic college football is, is is one of my obsessions college hockey is another and we have season tickets for both at Notre Dame so I guess that would be pop culture right yeah are, are you consistently go to the yes. to the games yes excellent rarely miss so this one's a joke what happens when you boil a funny bone I don't know you get laughing stock <laughs> what makes you nervous? What makes me nervous? Boy, that's a good one. Debating colleagues in departmental meetings. Mm, that sounds nerve-wracking, for sure. What is the worst four-pay job you have performed? So I worked uh, for a couple years at Dakin. Dakin is a stuffed animal company, back popular back in the 90s because of uh, what was the cat? Felix the cat? Felix, no, the uh, Garfield Oh, Garfield, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in any case, so I, I packed uh, shipping, uh, I packed boxes uh, of stuffed animals to ship. What's on your playlist? Well, uh, I'm a huge fan of Muse. Excellent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was not expecting that. So I just actually saw them in concert in uh, April of last year in Chicago. And the best city you've visited? Uh, anywhere. Anywhere. Well, uh, it's tough to beat Vancouver, British Columbia, our second home. But, uh, of course, there are many other beautiful cities. Oh, boy, I would say Rome. Okay, so, Darren, you've written two major books, and they're both award-winning, prize-winning, excellent. Uh, But many of our listeners might not be familiar with them. Uh, They're also by trade presses as opposed to academic presses, which, for those unfamiliar with the distinction, means that they're written to reach a broad audience of both fellow scholars and interested readers of all types. So in that spirit, I'd love to just cover some of the themes and the high points of both books, and and if we can, connect them back to what we've already uh, talked about, about who you are. So let's talk about your first book. Uh, It's called From Bible Belt to Sun Belt, and it came out in 2011 with Norton. Uh, Can you just give us a high-level description of what you were trying to do in that book. Sure. Well, it really is uh, the story of migration uh, of 
people moving uh, and in the process of that uh, movement uh, kind of redefining uh, politics uh, and religion, first in California and then across the across the nation as a whole. So uh, specifically, the story starts in the 30s and early 40s with the movement of uh, millions of, of migrants, white and black, from the Dust Bowl, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, uh, to Southern California especially. And uh, there, uh, forward, I track the growth of kind of southern transplanted southern evangelicalism uh, which which gets kind of uh, merged with the California culture, uh, the entrepreneurialism of the place, uh, the political conservatism of the place and creates what I call kind of sunbelt conservatism uh, and uh, that is going to lead into the flourishing of this kind of evangelical conservatism especially in the 1960s and 1970s which will help Reagan uh, win first the governorship of California in the late 60s, early 70s, and then ultimately in 1980 help him sweep kind of uh, the Sun Belt as a whole and sweep into the White House. So it's the rise of evangelical conservatism told through the lens of, of regional and political transformation. Yeah, and so of course that, that same sort of Sun Belt culture would I assume be what you'd credit for getting George W. Bush elected in 2000 as well. That's sort of, right. he's, you know, he's coming from Texas, sort of part of that Sun Belt. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a return Migrate, migration story as well, kind of uh, the ricochet effect. Uh, I show how kind of the sparks of this evangelical conservative-led movement, uh, this Reagan Republican revolution, starts in California and then makes its way east across the entire southern rim of the country. Uh, and in some ways, that's partly because those who moved to California moved back to Texas and moved back to Oklahoma. Uh, and one, one way or the other, that message of California is being spread back across uh, the East. And, and the legacy of that is obviously Reagan, but, but going forward, uh, Bush, George W. Bush, and, and in some ways to our present moment. Would you say that the, the Sunbelt category, is that still something we can talk about, or is that sort of mm-hmm. a historical moment when we can talk about uh, from Bible Belt to Sun Belt, do we still need to be thinking about the Sun Belt as its its own sort of cultural unit? Right. To a degree. I mean, I think it, it's always been a debated term. Is there, can we define a, a Sun Belt geographically? Uh, we're talking about, you know, South Carolina to Southern California. Those, of course, are states that are comprised of kind of different economic, political, cultural dynamics. Uh, nevertheless, I think it's still of value to see that Southern Rim as a consistent whole, as especially in light of, of Republican politics over the last two generations, that this has really been the heart of the Southern strategy, right? Uh, this is not the old South. This is a new South that is geared to uh, again, advanced kind of modernity in terms of economics, in terms of industry, uh, in terms of extractive industries. There's a lot of money down there. Uh, this has, of course, filtered through uh, a very kind of large and sprawling evangelical subculture as well, uh, whose epicenter is really along the southern rim. So I think it, it, it's still a value to consider this as, as kind of a somewhat kind of regional entity that has transformed the nation quite literally from the bottom up. Yeah, and it's certainly, I mean, it, it's such a big region of the country, right? It, as you said, it, it encompasses 20-something states at least. You know, one of the things that I've 
uh, liked about your books, and I think a lot of reviewers have described both your books as really having an, a, a sort of an epic quality to them. There's a feeling of a big, grand story with a lot of interesting characters. And that's certainly true from Bible Belt to Sun Belt. I mean, the book alone is four or 500 pages, at least, of the main text. If you could wave a magic wand and have every reader just take away one point from your book, from, five, from Bible Belt to Sun Belt, what would that point be? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I've kind of alluded to it. It's it's about people in motion. I guess it's also about place, just the importance of place and understanding uh, how uh, religion and politics are so deeply tied to the soil itself. You know, the, the migrants that I trace, of course, are growing up in hard times in Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, there are rural people. I mean, their plain folk faith makes sense to them in that space, as it does once they move it uh, to Southern California and lets it, let it take root in, in the suburbs of Orange County, for instance. So I guess that would be uh, either the second or another uh, kind of major takeaway, I think, of the book is that uh, region, regional transformation matter uh, and place and the grassroots kind of encounter with space matter as well. If there was one character from the whole book that you either had the most fun writing about or was the most sort of bombastic, vivid character, who, who would you pick? Huh, that's tough. I, there are a few. I mean, and, and you're right. I mean, I'm drawn to, I got into history because of stories about people. I like stories about people who aren't necessarily famous, uh, more average, uh, leading more mundane lives like the one I live. <laughs> and so uh, I do tend to populate my, my books with a lot of a lot of people. And from Bible Belt to Sun Belt, I mean, a couple come to mind. When you said bombastic, uh, it, it occurred to me Pat Boone was one of the more uh, enjoyable characters to work with. I spent a week uh, looking at... Uh, in his office in Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard, he literally has his whole life up on the wall in binders. There's about 100 binders. And he let me just flip through them. And uh, actually, at one point, I proposed to him that I write a biography of him, but he never went for it. So, uh, But yeah, he was fun. Story there, too. The last day I was there, they were having a birthday party uh, for one of the uh, members of, of the staff there. And Pat Boone calls me into the room. He's like, Darren, Darren, come here, and puts his arm around me. And before I know it, I'm singing happy birthday next to Pat Boone. So that was a lot of fun. But in terms of substantively, I think Gene Vandruff is a character I start with. I I encountered him early in the research, and initially I was going to write about religion and conservatism in Orange County, kind of add religion to the Lisa McGurr story. But that's, uh, you know, through researching that, I kept coming across people from the South, and Gene Vandruff was one of the first, and I spent hours with him telling, uh, while he told his story of of moving from Oklahoma uh, to California and then becoming uh, a real kind of uh, warrior for conservatism in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, So he he was very compelling and helped me make the shift to the southernization part of the story. Uh, and a second person who did the same was Marie Koenig, who I spent hours with as well. She came from Louisiana. Her father actually worked for Huey Long, and uh, she kind of brought that populist conservatism with her to Southern California, and she too became uh, a warrior for the conservative cause. I spent a number of afternoons with her, interviewing her, uh, and uh, we would have to pause at 5 o'clock each day for her martini. So that, that was memorable too. <laughs> but uh, That's sort of against character, I guess, for who I would imagine... 
She was in a, she she was not necessarily uh, the, a religious conservative, so uh, it, she was kind of outside the. The, the main cast of characters. Follow up on the Pat Boone binders. Uh, were they full of pictures or? Yeah, every, newspaper clippings. Uh, <laughs> I believe some correspondence. Uh, okay. So yeah, it was just it's fascinating. So sort of like just a scrapbook of, or a hundred scrapbooks. Hundred scrapbooks, right? But I mean, think about it. His story. You talk about southernization. You talk about Hollywood. You talk about political conservatism. You talk about the charismatic movement. I mean, it's all in there. Yeah, in my own research on it, I mean, he was a formative person shaping how evangelicals understood the Holy Land uh, in the 70s. He had a whole album uh, about it. Okay, last question for, for the first book, at least. Did you have a surprising finding or something that I think for a lot of historians, uh, it, really good historians, the, the final product can seem... Uh, really organic and natural, uh-huh. as if this is the obvious story. If you just go do the the research, anyone who's done historical research knows that um, there's a lot of surprises along the way. There's a lot of things that you thought going into a project that you actually have to change as you're developing it. Was there anything that stood stood out to you um, from the first book that was surprising? Hmm, good question. I mean, surprising in the sense of wonderful discoveries of sources. Uh, I you know I tell the story, I've told it elsewhere, of, of finding this uh, treasure trove of, of uh, primary archival materials at this church, Central Baptist. is the church that Gene Vandruff went to. Uh, it turns out the whole attic was full uh, of, of boxes and boxes, and they let me spend a couple of weeks in, in there sifting through this. And uh, that became really the, the, one of the core features of the book, uh, certainly of the dissertation. Uh, and uh, from that, I could, you know, draw out this story of Southernization. Uh, similarly, in terms of institutionally, was the discovery of Pepperdine University and sources there. This is a Church of Christ uh, college in Southern California, and uh, founded by again, kind of migrants from the Southwest. And I didn't come across that until the end of the dissertation. So the next move for me was going from dissertation to book, and it was reworking Pepperdine, threading it through the entire story, and then taking the whole story into the 1970s. Uh, The dissertation had ended in 1964. So I don't know if that qualifies. I think another fascinating find for me was just the extent to which the political right and the political left and, and the warriors on both sides were, were immersed heavily in surveillance of the other side through the 40s and 50s and 60s. And so looking at you know Jewish spy records, for instance, of those who infiltrated uh, right-wing organizations, whether it's the Birch Society or, or, or others, uh, and then reporting back. I mean, that was all really kind of fascinating. Uh, of course, it brought the Cold War to life in a way that I hadn't expected, I guess, at that early juncture. Boy, that, that makes the, the work of the historian sound uh, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move to, the, to your second book, uh, Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. Um, I'll ask a similar question. What were you trying to do in this book, sort of at the highest level? What was your mission plan for the book? Well, I started off on this book actually before I had finished the first one, and the most obvious starting point for me was following the money. I knew through my work on evangelicals and conservatives in the Southwest and California that uh, there's a whole lot of oil money uh, behind these causes and leadership behind these organizations. Oil was heavily funding churches as well as these different uh, kind of conservative political lobbies and organizations. So I thought, well, let's see if we put those two together at that level. Uh, So looking at individuals who had deep faith commitments and used their oil money to advance their causes both in the pews and beyond. Secondly, then, was 
just mapping out just how densely interconnected at the institutional level churches, denominational colleges, uh, missionaries were uh, to uh, oil corporations. Uh, for instance, and, and this is, you know, again, I found quite fascinating, is mapping out missionary work in Latin America uh, or in the Middle East and showing how that in many ways paved the way for petroleum geologists. And then thirdly, I guess what I'm trying to show is just, uh, you know, how in the oil patches of North America especially, oil, this energy regime, creates its own kind of culture, uh, its own kind of understandings of uh, daily work uh, and worship as well. Uh, what does it mean to live in an oil patch when, you know, uh, having grown up in Alberta, experiencing this firsthand, you know that following each boom is going to be a bust? And how does that shape your understandings of time, for instance? Uh, so those are kind of a couple of the three levels, at least, on, on which I was, I was working, hoping to draw these two uh, s- seemingly separate entities into one narrative into one conversation. Yeah, and I think one of the great things about the book is how you use particular families, particularly the the families that really make it big in the oil industry and who are also Christian, to sort of structure that whole narrative. So we have the the Rockefellers are probably the ones that most people recognize um, and all the philanthropic work with Rockefellers too, but also the Stewarts and the Pews, and and I'm sure I'm forgetting some as well, but it just seemed like such a, uh, it's like one of those situations where it was just begging to be written, uh, sort of as these family dramas, these multi-generational dramas, uh, along with these, as, as you were talking about, these much bigger themes of religion and, and economics. For sure. The most interesting things about the book is it brings together at least two major fields. I think you could say there's even more than two, but at least uh, energy, economic history on one hand, and then religious history on the other, which uh, aren't always combined. In fact, I think specialists in both those fields tend to to not pay a lot of attention uh, to the other. So this book does it in a way that if you're unfamiliar, you might just assume that that these things go together. But were there any unexpected challenges trying to merge these two fields together that often aren't? Uh-huh. There, there were. There, I mean, first of all, I was more familiar with the religious history side to this. And uh, I knew intuitively that, you know, if we want to understand the fundamentalist controversy of the 1920s, it was really Rockefeller versus the Stuarts, right? And so I knew intuitively that there, these family connections mattered to the religious history of modern America. Getting uh, familiarized with the other side of the equation, the economic, the oil, the energy was was much more daunting, and I guess I didn't realize the extent to which these these fields are flourishing in, on their own, and uh, so I had to read deeply, and it took me quite a while to just feel comfortable with those literatures and to see how I could apply them. The economics of oil is pretty complicated. I could only dive in so much, but I felt I needed to be somewhat uh, competent in order to make my claims stick. So that was that was one challenge. Uh, you know, you mentioned second energy studies has taken an anthropological turn, so culture matters. There's a lot of historians out there who are studying uh, the culture of coal, uh, the culture of coal mining towns, or the culture of oil. And uh, But rarely, if ever, do they take on religion. In fact, many of them are dismissive, I think, of that. So trying to make my voice heard in that was, was also a challenge. And then thirdly, I guess... Uh, just keeping all the moving parts together. Uh, this, you know, was quite sprawling at points, and 
uh, just how to make it manageable uh, was, was a challenge. I had to cut a lot of words from the final manuscript and which is surprising because it's so it, it's a 550 right. page book so, already and yeah. it, it had to happen yeah. and uh, so that was a source of frustration but you know having some core characters helped uh, like these families and I guess the last thing I'd say about that is you know I, I didn't necessarily want kind of the white rich oil man to be foregrounded quite as much as it is in this book, but in order to keep the thread together, I, I had to kind of foreground those those particular families uh, as a way to, to offer the glue, really, to the narrative. Similar question uh, to your first book. Sort of, is there a, a striking character or vivid character? I have my own favorite character mm. from your book. Uh, and I'll just jump in here and quickly say it's it's probably Nelson Rockefeller, mm. um, in part because I know him from political history as the vice president to to Ford for just a few short years, mm. and sort of the his his prehistory as a moderate Republican in the 1964 uh, election, but he co- becomes such a tragic character by the end, where he's he seems very bitter from his time in office, and then he's trying to take over the the whole Rockefeller family fortune. Excellently drawn character that is within this much broader uh, mm. broader story. So I think mm. for me that's the one that if I'm thinking back, like he really pops out as like uh, a vivid character. Mm-hmm. But do you have any particular ones that come to mind? That's interesting that you mentioned that. I mean, I think, you know, I, I talk about wildcat Christianity, which which is kind of this fiercely independent uh, kind of capitalist ethos, and, and uh, it, it combines Catholics and evangelicals, but it's very much an evangelical story. So I kind of focused on, on them initially, but I, I did get drawn to the Rockefeller side of this and, and some of the compelling uh, characters uh, Nelson, uh, but also uh, his brothers, you know, his father, very impressive as well. I think the one I, I was drawn to most was Ida Tarbell. And, uh, you know, this is the, the woman who took down Standard Oil in, in 1911 uh, through her writing, her muckraking journalism, critiquing the oil industry. And, and I was just very drawn to her, her biography, the ways in which her own faith evolved from her upbringing, Methodist upbringing, to eventually what was more like a Quaker understanding worldview and you know didn't necessarily wear it on her sleeve but her faith commitments and the evolution of those faith commitments did matter to her writing and and ultimately to the the consequences of what she did politically so uh, I found her to be a very compelling figure and very significant just to the the actual story itself very significant figure as well uh, anything surprising from doing the research on Anointed with Oil? I know the book took quite a long time to mm-hmm. to research and, and then to write. And how long did it take you? Guess eight years, seven, eight years. Yeah, that's a long time to live with mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. Uh, one project. Anything surprise you, or the same as uh, as with from Bible Belt uh, to Sun Belt? Anything that was just sort of really exciting that happened during the research process? A couple things early on, I was thrilled, uh, surprised, but thrilled to see just how influential J. Howard Pugh was in Alberta. Uh, He worked in partnership with uh, Ernest Manning, who was a devout evangelical premier of Alberta, to start the Canadian oil sands, uh, something that we're still, again, encountering today with protests over the Keystone Pipeline and so forth. So to see that uh, was, you know, a great kind of aha moment for me, and it's prominent in the book. Similarly, but on the other side of the equation, kind of the, the history of major oil and religion, I thoroughly enjoyed my time working through some of the Aramco papers, some of the, the kind of managerial class that worked for Aramco in Saudi Arabia, and just seeing how they brought their own kind of faith commitments, in most cases Catholic, to this project of building a large 
oil industry in Saudi Arabia. And at the camp level, for instance, you know, uh, facilitating the the growth of morale groups, you know, basically little cell groups of, of Catholics and Protestants and uh, kind of trying to uh, wrap the entire venture in, as one of kind of internationalist religion as well as politics, kind of a, an ecumenism uh, on the oil patch. So uh, that too brought great satisfaction and uh, as well as I mentioned earlier, tracking some of these early missionaries and geologists who worked together in many ways to open up oil fields in Latin America and the Middle East, too. Yeah, and that, that seems to be a trend among a few historians, looking at how missionaries paved the way for other parts of what we might call the American century. I'm thinking of, like, Matt Sutton's book on the role that missionaries play as early spies mm-hmm. uh, for the CIA. That's sort of a, a new finding in the field, I guess, in the last uh, couple decades, at least. Uh, last question on anointed with oil. Um, I'm curious, do you have an origin story for the title of the book? When I've been talking about it here at, at Upper House, uh, people say, that's such a great title. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's such a play on words. Is there a, a cool story about that? I don't know if it's cool, but I, I know the exact moment. I was uh, with some friends, colleagues. Uh, I think we were having a beer after work, and one of my colleagues said, oh, you should call it anointed with oil. And uh, he, I think... He knew, you know, the biblical references of this, too. He grew up in a Presbyterian home. His father was a Presbyterian minister. So I think he just got it. And as soon as he said it, we all looked at each other like, yeah, that's it. And uh, titles matter. I mean, uh, you know, this was very early in the process. But at every turn, every point of frustration, I could look to that title and get exactly what I was trying to say on multiple levels. It just had that quality. The subtitle changes, and, you know, I didn't have any control of that. But uh, the anointed with, with oil title just uh, kept me grounded through the whole process. So yes, it, it rings rings true on many levels, I think. Okay, I want to switch uh, quickly to, to one more speed round. And this one, less about you and more about just your views of your field of, of American history more broadly. Uh, so the first question, uh, what is the most significant book in American religious history in the last 50 years? Since 1970, that would be. Wow. Well, I mean, this is a default, but I, I guess the book that I mentioned earlier that got me very much interested in being a historian was George Marsden's uh, book on fundamentalism in American culture, which came out in 1980 at a at a point where I think the religious and political landscape of the United States was 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 pivoting quite profoundly, and uh, it it really helped uh, explain uh, the origins of that moment. Uh, but it also was incredibly thorough in its grasp of the intellectual, cultural, and social dynamics of early 20th century fundamentalism. So uh, I guess I'll, my default will be that one, but it certainly belongs in, in the list of top five. One reason I did 1970 is because that, that's the cutoff point for uh, Ernest Sandin's book, mm. um, which is sort of the precursor to, to Marsden's book uh, 10 years later. Uh, which book in this period from 1970 do you wish you had written? It has to be a history book? Yeah. Ah. Uh. I was going to say, I'm going to cheat a little bit, I was going to say Common Ground, which was written technically by a journalist about the bus crisis in Boston in the early 70s, and and it was such a model, I think, of doing journalism, but also, uh, you know, there's a historical quality to it, too, written in the 90s, I think, about the early 70s, but he spends countless hours and pages documenting the lives of three different families uh, and looking at how they position themselves in this in this crisis, you know, politically. So I just found that to be, and and in some ways you talk about the books I write as being kind of epic or dealing with a lot of people. It's, it's, that was actually quite an inspiration for me. So I don't know if that qualifies, but that'll be my answer. What idea in your field needs to die? 
and, and this has to, in some ways, has to do with me uh, and, and kind of coming to terms with Bible Belt to Sun Belt in light of our current politics. So what I used to rail against more uh, feverishly than I do now was kind of reducing religion or reducing evangelicalism to class or race or, or reduce, reducing it to, uh, you know, economic terms. And uh, in part, I wrote from Bible Belt to Sun Belt to show again, like George does, George Marsden does, again, the, the full complexity and texture of the belief system that these evangelicals adhered to. Uh, I think in the process, I may have downplayed uh, some issues of class and race, uh, maybe would revis- revisit that in light of, of you know, some of the ongoing kind of bitterness of, of today's politics. Uh, but uh, that would still be something as a religious historian I try to, you know, uh, defend against, uh, showing my colleagues that, no, faith, you know, religion really does matter on its own terms as an important uh, identity, as an important uh, kind of motivator. What archive is on the top of your bucket list to visit? Well, I'm, I'm headed to California again, and uh, it's not necessarily my ultimate uh, dream trip, but I will be doing some research and we'll be spending uh, time at the Hoover Institute in Stanford and also the Bancroft Library at Berkeley. And there's some uh, fascinating collections there that I'm, I'm, I'm going to tease out and, and play with as a potential for our next project. A lot of good uh, collections on conservatism mm-hmm. at the Hoover Institution. What's your favorite class to teach? Well, I would say the most recent undergraduate class that I taught which forced me into kind of beyond my comfort zone was a history of energy in modern America. And it was through all my years of reading for the book, I thought, why not teach a class on it? And it was 25 students, mostly engineering students, uh, sustainability minors, which is a very exciting and, and popular program at Notre Dame. And so I was able to bring the historical cultural perspective to what they tended to focus on as kind of in more technological terms. And uh, the course, I thought, went really well, and we all enjoyed learning, you know, uh, about things like labor uh, in the coal fields of Colorado, uh, about living in a nuclear, you know, production zone in western Washington and Siberia in the 1950s. So that that was really enjoyable. And I think because also it forced me into this new area uh, of, of teaching and of discovery, it, it, it energized me, no pun intended. Finally, an up-and-coming historian that everyone should read is... Dan Hummel. Someone else. You've already emerged. Well, I was just invited to review Lauren Turek's yeah. forthcoming book, and I think that'll be really exciting. It's, again, taking kind of the global turn uh, for evangelicalism, looking also at uh, the entanglements of uh, evangelicalism and religion in Latin America uh, as it uh, affects uh, foreign policy as well. I can second that. I'm very much looking forward to that book uh, being out. Um, okay, transitioning just to a few last questions, uh, sort of thinking about uh, why we have you here at, at Upper House in particular. The first one is more of a curiosity of mine, um, but you, you teach at a Catholic university, and my guess would be you teach students who uh, predominantly identify as Christians. I, I could be uh, mistaken about that, but um, certainly many of them probably would. Do you see this context? I'm particularly thinking about how we uh, here at Upper House work on a public institution where um, there is no divinity school, there's clear separation, um, and that definitely does influence uh, sort of how Christians act at UW. But I'm wondering if you see your context at University of Notre Dame as influencing the way you teach or write or exist as a historian uh, at mm-hmm. Notre Dame. Yeah, great question. It is a unique place, and I have the 
benefit, if you will, of having taught at two other places before that. Uh, first, a very large Big Ten school like Wisconsin, uh, and secondly, at WashU. Uh, at both of those places, at a base level, you know, I, I had to, again, make these claims and, and forcefully defend the, the proposition that religion matters, uh, that we should be learning about it in the classroom. And uh, both in terms of my colleagues and students, it was tough sometimes to, to, to make that argument stick and uh, to the point of even attracting students to your classes. I, I did teach at WashU, especially a lot of classes on religion and politics, and it took some, some work. Being at Notre Dame, there's no case to be made. I mean, it's just it's it's organic. It's in mm. it's again it's in the soil, right? Uh, students do know that it matters, uh, whether or not they are committed uh, to their own kind of faith traditions. And Notre Dame is a very diverse place, especially at the faculty graduate student uh, graduate student level. You know, my colleagues, everyone knows that this is just something that we need to. Uh, take seriously in, in our work and, and in the classroom. So uh, that has created a, a pretty welcoming environment uh, at Notre Dame. And so you can take it to the next level quite easily. And that means, you know, asking big questions, questions of historical importance, but also of very present kind of ethical moral. And going back to this energy class, for instance, I mean, Pope Francis is very much kind of stirred up, you know, kind of a social activism of a, of a different kind, really, on Notre Dame campus. Uh, you will have still some of the causes, uh, abortion, for instance, that still generate a lot of attention there. But environment, uh, climate, sustainability, these now are uh, at the, the f- you know, kind of the, the forefront of many undergraduates' imagination. And so they want to take these kind of classes, and in those classes they want to, they want to uh, you know, learn how to apply not just their knowledge, but in many cases their faith as well to this pressing issue of, of climate change. And, and I think it happens here too with many students, but um, this question of integration, of, of sort of understanding how whatever level of, of religious identity they have, how it actually integrates into the, the rest of their life, what they're learning in the classroom, what they're hoping will happen in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Notre Dame prides itself on, you know, nurturing mind, soul, and body, and, and I do find that to be quite a, a powerful equation for, for most students and faculty on campus. So This question comes from actually someone else on our staff, uh, Susan. She was looking over your two books and thinking about all this research that you've done, and she just sort of asked me point blank, has anything that Darren's learned from his decades of research changed him mm-hmm. as a person? Mm-hmm. And if so, sort of how did it change you? I, I think it's certainly broadened my my world my worldview i've i've had an opportunity to explore uh so many different types of people and different types of faith traditions and institutions uh, across the last uh, century and a half and uh i've come a long way since my days in edmonton alberta i think and and with that i think has come a more kind of robust kind of ecumenical view, uh, whether it be of my, my own sense of faith, but also just of the way religion structures the United States and, and the world beyond. So uh, much more of a global purview that way. History is also humbling, uh, and it should be humbling. I think uh, unlike other fields where, you know, the power of the mind is, is primary, philosophy, mathematics, history requires you to converse with your subjects and to try to understand their failings uh, as well as their triumphs and, and to relate 
to those as a human being. And that has enriched me, I think, and certainly enriched my, my worldview. So, you know, uh, it's made me less certain, perhaps, more open uh, to mystery and less ideological, let's put it that way. Yeah, and it's sort of that, that truism that at least historians tell each other about how uh, history is often the questions you're asking of the past. That's just something that I've thought about, too, is, is that sort of the, the recognition of the limited perspective that we have and the questions we bring to the past really do uh, sort of make you recognize the complexity and maybe appreciate experiences that at least chronologically are far before you mm-hmm. um, in most cases. So last question, Upper House is a Christian space with a predominantly uh, Christian audience. And I'm wondering if you have any particular ways you hope Christians uh, will read and understand or be changed by your writings. Yes, good question. Yeah, I'm certainly writing for a broader audience, at least that's my goal. Whether I succeed or not, you know, it's, it's up to the reader. With that in mind, too, hoping that those who attend church, belong to faith communities, uh, evangelicals, for instance, are, are going to pick up these two books and, and learn something about their own histories and their church histories that they didn't know before. I guess, you know, I referenced George Marsden earlier. You know, Marsden was just so just skilled in contextualizing early 20th century evangelicalism within these intellectual and cultural parameters. And I seek to do the same thing, but perhaps lean more heavily to the, the social context, to place the histories of modern American religion in mundane circumstances, in the soil in relation to place and region, tying it to particular economic structures, tying it to particular industries. And so showing evangelicals, for instance, how uh, their own church lives have been kind of deeply embedded in these larger uh, social contexts across time. That's great. I think at Upper House here, we, we sort of live out some of those contexts and being in a physical space and having to recognize all the different intellectual currents, cultural currents, but also physical, economic forces that are sort of shaping what we're doing, we're doing here as well. Yeah, I, my goal is to make it difficult to reduce any one thing to any one thing, right? Offer the, the most texture uh, as possible, but to also raise, I guess this would be a, a Second point, to raise questions for those in the pulpits and pews and parishes, questions of ultimate importance. And again, talking about energy and environment, for instance, how do we or how should we be wrestling with the power of this one industry, for instance, that has shaped us so profoundly across the board. And so that's what I hope my books will, will stir up as well. Well, thank you, Darren, for enlightening conversation. Good to be with you. Thanks, Dan. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear. Audio engineering by Andy Johnson. And graphic design by Madeline Ramsey.